I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. In this episode of TBA Now, we learn about addiction and substance abuse from Dr. Shelley Greenfield. Shelley's a leading clinical and research authority on the treatment of substance abuse disorders. Her research focuses on a wide range of questions regarding development, implementation, quality, and financing of treatment services for substance abuse disorders in the U.S. and globally. It's a tough topic. It's important information she imparts. I learned a lot from Shelley. I hope you will too. Shelley Greenfield, welcome to TBA Now. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Shelley, what led you to enter into the field of psychiatry and addiction? It's a long and winding road, I suppose, in terms of how I got to where I got to. But I think suffice it to say that I've always had an interest in um, both in people and um, their life stories and life histories, but also about things that affect people for which there have often not been enough uh, treatment and enough focus so that we see many people suffering in ways that I think are not necessary. And as a physician, I think all physicians really are focused on how to relieve suffering. And um, so I've always had this interest in some of the things that I think we have not always done so well in, in medicine in general and in psychiatry and places where there's a huge gap, both in the need and, um, and in the treatments that we've been able to provide. And we've seen that in, throughout all of, you know, all the decades of medicine and mental health um, as we kind of try to move that needle forward. So addiction's always been a place that um, affects many, many people. And uh, and yet, so few people have the availability to get treat, treated and helped. And the only the other thing I would add to that is, I think I've been interested in how these kinds of disorders that are so common come to be the focus of so much stigma and discrimination. And then, how do we? How do we? What do we do to make that different in our society? And how do we help people move toward getting the care and the help that they need over, yeah. over their lifetime? Tell us what, what you're doing right now. <laughs> so I am an addiction psychiatrist and I am uh, at McLean Hospital where I've spent actually the majority of my career. Um, I was a medical student at Harvard. I did psychiatry as a medical student at McLean. And I uh, did my residency in psychiatry at McLean. I left for a couple of years to learn epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I came back in 1992 and I've actually mm -hmm. spent the rest of my professional career there. 
Uh, I am a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and at McLean, I, I have several hats. Through my career, I've been, as you mentioned, both a practitioner and also a researcher in um, substance use disorders. I've had a particular focus on women with addiction over the last 15 years or so. And I wear a couple of other hats at McLean. I'm what they call the chief academic officer there, which means I kind of oversee faculty development and training. And I also am uh, the chief of a division of women's mental health. And so I bring the addiction focus to our division that focuses on the mental health uh, and well-being of girls and women through the lifespan. There are so many dimensions to this work that you're describing. And even as you describe the corner where you reside, it, it gives one sense of just how many corners are out there uh, and all the work that is now being done so actively as we attempt to redefine, as well as I think newly understand how addiction works. So it would be helpful to me if you could, for uh, the lay people listening, what is your best and current definition of addiction as opposed to someone saying, you know, there's like these, oh, if I drink X glasses of wine, does that mean I'm an addict? What, what, how do we understand addiction? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think um, that's frequently misunderstood. I think one of the things you and I have talked a little bit about is how prevalent addiction is or substance use disorders are in the US and around the world. Yeah. And that so many people through the course of their lifetime have an alcohol or a drug use disorder. And you know, in any given year, 14% of the population actually has an alcohol use disorder in any given year. And um and in addition to that, there's another whole group of people who are struggling and may not actually qualify for a diagnosis. So when you ask what's an addiction and what am I really talking about, you know, what we're really talking about is the use of a substance in such a way that in, it impairs your life in some form or another. And we use a constellation of like 11 different kinds of symptoms. They cut across several domains. One is a loss of control of the substance itself, meaning you use more than you used to use, mm -hmm. or you've tried to cut back and you haven't been able to do so. You've had a couple of unsuccessful attempts. You kind of crave it when you're not using it. Some of those kinds of symptoms. We also look at things like, is it impairing your function in some way? Does it interfere with your life in some way? Does it interfere with either your things you used to like to do that you no longer do? your family relationships in some way or, or work perhaps? Um, are, do you ever use substances in some way that's risky for yourself? You know, um, do things that you probably shouldn't have done because you were intoxicated. And then finally, the thing that people most often think about, but this is only one part of the picture and it doesn't even have to be there is, are you getting tolerant to that? So for example, people who drink alcohol sometimes say, you know, I used to get X kind of an effect from a glass, but now I need two glasses to get that kind of an effect. Right. We right. call that tolerance. And then finally, for people who are usually more severely affected, we have sometimes withdrawal where, you know, you stop using it and you have some withdrawal symptoms or you crave, crave the substance. And when I mention all that, there's 11 of those things and you really only need two of them to qualify for, 
you know, having some form of a use disorder. So I would assume that for many of us listening to this list, that the first thing uh, one feels is, oh, geez, like, is that something that might be a part of my life? What, how does one ascertain uh, the degree to which something is within normal bounds? Uh, is, is there, do you go to a psychiatrist? How, how do you evaluate essentially your behavior relates to these categories of addiction or the categories indicating addiction? Yeah. So also a really good question. I think um, I think there's a lot of different approaches. I think there are, and I'll just give you a range, Keith, and you know, I, because I think there are ways to investigate these things um, in reliable ways on the internet by doing a little bit of web research, and I can give you some resources in that regard. Um, so there are some things that you can do to kind of just you know kind of assess yourself. So that's one one beginning place. But, but there's also talking to a trusted clinician, whether that's your primary care doctor or whether it's going to a mental health person, an addiction person, and, and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this. You know, this is why I'm concerned. What do I do about this? Um, you know, one thing that's true about any, any issue any of us has over time is we all want to strive for health and well-being over the course of our lifetime. And what we've all learned in various ways is that anytime we're kind of worried about something in our health, it's always better if we can talk to somebody earlier rather than later um, so that we can intervene sooner rather than later, at least get the information we need to help us have good decision making. So, you know, if we talked about alcohol a little bit um, and we just want to discuss that because alcohol is the most probably among the most common things that people use um, in the United States. I think it's you know something like ninety plus percent of people use alcohol at least on occasion. I think there are lots of guideposts along the way for people to think about um, their use of alcohol and drinking, and I could tell you about a few of those if you'd like. Um, and that could be informative uh, just to begin a discussion. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, thank you for um, giving us some resources that we will provide um, in text accompanying uh, when people uh, pick up the podcast, because I think the no the notion there are resources available is a crucial uh, aspect of moving towards treatment and acknowledging addiction and how one then handles it. Um, I think... I'd like to take a step back in this conversation and focus down on a couple of uh, trends that we see in our culture. And then um, later on, I think uh, we'll be able to then kind of apply that knowledge to, to Great. Um, some practical problem solving. Right now, certainly what has been extremely prevalent in the news is, of course, opioid addiction. It has been talked about so much. And the new book that just came out about the Sackler family and about a pharma and opioid addiction and the degree to which people knew its addictive qualities 
And then the addition of fentanyl as another component in this terrible loop of addiction. Um, I'm curious if you would clarify for us, what is it about this substance uh, that is so addictive? This other drug called fentanyl, where does it come from and what is its correlation in use? And three, is the problem, is it, are we moving towards a, a detente? Is there some beginning of a reversal of the trend or is it continuing to be the scourge that apparently it's been at least for the past uh, few years? Yeah. So Keith, I think we were talking about um, just recently about the pandemic and um, everything that's happened in the course of the pandemic. And I think I may have mentioned to you that before the pandemic happened, we were in the United States in the midst of really three different kinds of epidemics that people in psychiatry and in the addiction world and in public health were concerned about. One was the opioid crisis, which, as you said, had had garnered appropriately a lot of focus. We also had a more silent epidemic of alcohol-related problems, and we also had an epidemic of suicide. And all three of those things were to some degree in the news and were of great concern. This is all before the pandemic. Right. And, and then the pandemic happened. And as we all know, many, many people this past year have really had a lot more of isolation and social disconnection. And the opioid crisis, you know, which started 10 to 15 years ago, plus really farther back than that, um, you know, really moved forward initially from um, a lot of prescription opioids that were basically out there in, in, the, in the population um, mm-hmm. through medical prescriptions and in a way that had not happened in previous generations. And what you really so wound like, up- It's just interesting. So as I recall, like part of this begins as you're suggesting because people have had surgery, they've had whatever thing they've had that's creating pain. And do physicians not really get how, how troubling this medication is long-term? Do they not know? Is it like, how, how deep does it go in terms of realizing it's full, um, the powerful addictive dimensions of the drug? Yeah. Well, so, you know, when you say who understands what, you know, it depends which piece of which, which, uh, right. which, which swath of time do you want to talk about? Do people understand now? Yes, everybody understands now. But if you go back in time, there was a period of time where people were very worried about ensuring that people had relief of pain. And I think at that time, there was a lot of drive toward trying to make sure that people had the tools to assist people with pain. And Opioid prescription, opioid analgesics seem to be, you know, in many people's minds, there were newer types of opioid analgesics, longer acting opioid analgesics, like some of the ones you've heard about, oxycodone, oxycontin. And those seem to be like potentially really like they would be helpful. Simultaneous to that, though, there were not really the kinds of safeguards around prescribing and around consideration of the potential addiction 
addiction liability. And as you've read about the Sackler family and others, there was also a lot of misinformation, lack of training, and all sorts of things that you know, are very context dependent and context driven. And what we saw, and we could, you and I could spend the next rest of the day talking about that Um, because there were many different, um, uh, there were many different circumstances that led to what I would just call an overprescribing of these things. So for example, I'll just give you an idea, like you could have a day surgical procedure where most people would just need sort of, um, uh, you know, acetaminophen or ibuprofen, they wouldn't even need a narcotic analgesic. And at the time, it was just people just prescribed a narcotic analgesic in case somebody needed it, in case somebody needed it, as opposed to thinking, well, you don't really need it. You know, that's right. how it would be now. But back in those days, that wasn't how it was, and there was a lot of overprescribing, and a lot of it had to do with there not being guardrails like there are now. And um, mm-hmm. we again, we could talk about all the circumstances that led to that. But what did happen from an epidemiologic standpoint is that you had pretty much a population that had previously been relatively unexposed to narcotic analgesics to a population that almost everybody got exposed to narcotic analgesics. And what you want, because right. if everybody's having any kind of procedure, dental, outpatient surgery, whatever it is, and you're going to get one of those things, there are going to be a lot of people exposed who never would have been exposed. And once you've got people getting exposed to a substance that has an addiction liability, you will ultimately see the complex interplay between your genetic liability to have an addiction and your exposure to a substance. If you have a genetic liability to an addiction, but you're never exposed to that substance, you will never know because it'll never happen to you. But if you have that and by just growing up and getting a surgical procedure, you're going to get exposed, you are going to be more likely to express that vulnerability. And so, what so we- explains why in a place like these little towns in the Midwest where, you know, there's the, 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 the number of people who end up using uh, is stunning. And I think you're explaining how it is that such isolated places, because it's the first response is to give out uh, these powerful uh, narcotic drugs. It and, was. It was the first response. It is no yeah. longer. And by the time the, how do we say it, the horse was already out of the barn or whatever the saying you want to know is, the problem had really spread all over the place across the country. And it really didn't know that many different bounds across, you know, socio-demographic groups. You know, it did, there were many different people who were affected. And, and you know, it was the beginning of this addiction crisis to opioids. And it spread into like it often does into illicit markets for these things and ultimately right. to people running out of scri- prescriptions, not being able to get them and people resorting to other types of opioids like the kinds like heroin and other things and moving sometimes from pills to, you know, um, intravenous use. And before you know it, you know, the crisis unfolded until it was an explosive crisis with people overdosing and dying. And, um, and by the time all of that was so clearly out in the press, the public health crisis had really mounted to you know an extent that I think uh, um, when we look at it, 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 it is stunning. And what's really unfortunate, and I think I, 
I may have mentioned this to you is that during the last year, we actually saw the most numbers of people, the greatest number of people in a year die. I think I think the it was um I think we ended up with ninety thousand two hundred deaths from opioids in um twenty twenty, wow. which is actually another increase above uh the year previously. And what we have seen, so the irony is that we actually have seen as as um, there have been more guardrails around prescribing, we have actually seen a, a slight downturn actually in the numbers of people with an opioid use disorder in the United States. But unfortunately, having the disorder has become more deadly because as people have turned to using um, opioids that they're obtaining on the street, um, those are tainted with fentanyl, which is a synthetic that is very powerful. And um, and people, of course, when you're obtaining things on the street, you don't really know what you're getting. And so what is available on the street is more deadly than ever before. So even as maybe the numbers of people with the disorder are starting to go down, the deadliness and the potential lethality of having the disorder is going up. So we're seeing that happen simultaneously. And um, so, you know, to say that people in the field aren't worried, I mean, very worried about all of this and, and, and very concerned about how to, you know, get treatment to people. And, you know, the good news about this is that we actually have treatment. I mean, there are three federally approved medications for treatment of this disorder. They are all incredibly effective and getting people to the treatment and the treatments to the people. This is the big dilemma. It's that gap that I mentioned yeah. at the very beginning when we started talking, you know, trying to help people get what they need to get better um, is... And and also to prevent death, basically, you know, is is really what I think people, both in psychiatry and medicine and public health, all really are striving for, so that we can really stem this tide and get people what they need. Um, so, um, so hopefully that explains a little bit of this. It does. I appreciate it. I I wonder to to what extent did COVID uh, contribute to the uptick in lethality of uh, using. So I think I think the lethality has a lot to do with sort of the markets that are on the street and the increase in the increase amount of fentanyl that's actually in what's available um, on the street and what people are you know um, able to obtain and that's part of the lethality. I think probably one of the Parts of the question you're asking is has has did COVID inhibit getting treated? And I would say that's been a real issue for people. You know, it's been very hard. Like everyone I know who listens to this podcast knows that getting treatment during the pandemic for all sorts of things, people had a harder time getting themselves treated in the middle of the pandemic. While a lot of the resources were going to treat people for COVID, and also a lot of people were afraid to come get treatment. And there is a lot less treatment because of, you know, the pandemic. So for addiction, which is it tends to be a more isolating disorder, 
to not be able to come into a treatment program or to, you know, um, be, you know, participatory, for example, in a group meeting, um, to come to a program where you could receive your medication. In spite of trying to make those things more available during the pandemic through telehealth and other things, there just really wasn't enough capacity and it was really hard for people to access it. So I think that's been really very difficult um, for a lot of people with all all sorts of types of substance-related problems, um, not just opioids, you know, people who are struggling with alcohol use problems and other kinds of substance-related problems. It's been hard to um, feel isolated, to have a hard time connecting with others and to come into treatment. And so I hope we're kind of beginning to come out of that, you know, and be able to, you know, start to offer more because the good news on all of these things is that we have lots of treatment available. I mean, this is probably in the, you know, 2021, we have more effective treatments than we ever before have had, you know, both medications, behavioral treatments, yeah, and we know how to treat co-occurring other mental health conditions like depression and anxiety, which are often part of um, having a, a substance-related problem. And we have lots, lots of things we can do to help people, but we have to, as I said, there's this gap. We have to get the treatments to the people and the people to the treatments. And, you know, fewer, somewhere between, depending on what substance you're looking at, 10 to 15% of anybody any given year with a substance use problem gets, it, gets treated. Which means that's, that's fully wait, that's small. That's small a number. Yeah, yeah. Ten percent of people with an alcohol use problem get any kind of treatment in any given year. That's a shocking. Ninety percent get nothing, including a single time they talk about it with any health professional in any given year. And uh, um, for an opioid use disorder, because of the focus, it's probably about. 15 to 20 percent in any given year get any treatment. So this has so many implications. Number one, of course, for the person who's suffering with this substance problem, because uh, if it's gotten to the point of fulfilling, um, as you said, at least two of those uh, categories that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, to, to, to live with that day to day can be torturous, not to mention for the people that person lives with, and then the broader public health implications, people who drive while impaired, people who go to work impaired, people that don't work and are disabled because of uh, being uh, addicted to a particular substance. It's, it's a huge, huge problem. I mean, uh, just giving us that number um, indicates that this is truly a crisis for our country. Do, do you know... Um, of course, you know. Do you, tell me about how America's treatment of, let's just say, I don't know, because I don't know if you can make a, a global statement. Well, let's just start global. You can tell me if you want to cut it down, which is how do European nations handle the problems of addiction? Are we way behind? Are we way, like, how does it all stack up? Well, that's a good question. That's not an easy one to answer because it just depends where in the world you are. You know, I, I, right. I think I think we do worse in some ways than certain European countries that have, you know, a fully insured population where everyone has access to health insurance and um, where they can do certain things that we just can't do because not our whole population is insured and has access to care. So I think 
when you start there, you can see that that's already an advantage if you're in a situation like that. But I would say that the global need in terms of people getting treated is is pretty profound um, everywhere in the world, and that nobody really has a good corner on this, you know, as opposed, you know, in terms of bringing people into treatment and making sure that it's fully integrated into our all of our systems of how we think about it. Because I think the thing I really want to emphasize is that who is a person with an addiction? Well, the person with an addiction is your neighbor. It's the person down the street from you. It's your uncle. It's your aunt. It's your cousin. It's your cousin's yeah. spouse. It's somebody you love. It's somebody you once knew who never told you. And if you met them again now, they might not tell you also, but now they've been treated and they feel better. Mm-hmm. Those are people with addiction problems. They're just everywhere because it's so prevalent. And you know, whether it's a cannabis problem or it's an alcohol problem or it's an opioid problem or it's a problem with stimulants or whatever it is, this is very highly prevalent in the population. And um, and I think people have stereotypes in their mind as to who that could be, that person. And as I said, these are your friends and neighbors. They're the people you know and love. They're the people you've met before and the people you're going to meet tomorrow. And, and unless they tell you, you're never going to know because right. you wouldn't. And they're not some fictitious idea of who a person is who has an addiction problem. And I think that's what's so important to know and why it's so important that we have so many different ways for people to enter into a treatment system, whether it's through their primary care doctor who they talk to, or going to a therapist that they talk to, Mm -hmm. or they're doing research a little bit online and thinking, hey, I'm really worried about myself. Who should I go speak to and finding somebody but it has to come out of the shadows and people need to talk more about it and people need to realize there's help. And that's part of why I think it's so important we talk about the fact that there are excellent treatments for people. And it's like every other kind of condition. Is there one treatment? Nope. There's several different kinds of treatments, just like many other things. Like if you have a cholesterol problem, the first drug you take might not be the one that works for you. So it's like every other kind of, 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 chronic health condition that we have. And most people tell you there's not going to be a magic bullet either. You know, like if you have a cholesterol problem, if you're really lucky, maybe that does the job. But for many people, it's like, well, there's a little diet going on there and some exercise, (laughs) you know, it's a bunch of things. And these are the same kinds of problems. They're just, you need, you know, there's medications, there's all sorts of types of behavioral therapies, and people can really get better over time, which is what's so great about it is that people can do well and they can become healthy again and they can reclaim their lives and their families and feel better. So The stigma is so profound in our culture that somehow to acknowledge addiction is something shameful that has to be hidden at all costs. I think that's very true. And, you know, it's really something we work so hard against. Um, and we know we've seen these things change over time. You know, I think we all talk about, we all talk about how cancer at one point was something, it was a word you couldn't say, you know, in right. the um, early to middle part of the 20th century, even into the middle part, you know, you couldn't say the word, you couldn't talk about it. Now that's something we talk about all the time. And depression has been like that too. And I think we're in a much better place for people to be able to you feel more free about talking about the fact that they had depression and they're being treated. I think we have a long, long way to go with all of these things, but addiction probably is 
one of the most highly stigmatized. And I think it does make it really, really hard for people to, you know, say that they're struggling with something and they don't understand why and they want to figure it out. So I think you're right. Stigma works really against all of us um, in terms of helping us help ourselves and help other people in our family that we love. You know, I think one of the things that I think is really important for people to know is that, you know, some of the most common things that are legal are some of the biggest issues we have, you know, and alcohol is a real big one of them. Say more about the alcohol issue, because I know that though we hear about alcoholism being a problem, I don't think it gets a kind of attention currently in the press, but as you've described and written about elsewhere, there the truly alcoholism is a highly dangerous addiction with enormous ramifications for the individual and for the society. So what is going on with the addiction of alcoholism and what are you seeing both as a practitioner and as a researcher? Yeah, so we know that in the 15 years that led up to the pandemic, you know, that we were seeing rising rates on an annual basis of alcohol use, misuse, and then alcohol use disorders. So year over year, rising rates and um, more people having an alcohol use disorder. In fact, I think I mentioned earlier that in 2015, one of the last times we had like a full survey, 14% of people in any given year actually had an alcohol use disorder. It's a crazy number. And another, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent were using alcohol in harmful ways, binge drinking, and other things. So, really, almost one in five people in the population. And this is very alarming. And the other thing that we saw in that period of time between 2001 and like 2013 or so is that um, there was a rising rate of alcohol use problems in women across the age, age range from young women, you know, 18 to 25, but all the way up into middle years and older years. So if you go back in time to, let's say the 1980 or so, the prevalence between men and women in the United States of having an alcohol use disorder was five to one. So male to men to males to females, five to one. So five times as many men had an alcohol use disorder. That was like, you know, back in 1990. By the time we got to 2000, that had narrowed to about 2.5 to one. And 10 years later, it had gone down to about 1.9 to one. And now we're down to 1.7 to one. And so there's been this rising rate in women and uh, kind of a fairly level amount in men, but the total amount has increased. And the for women, there's lots of things that women have greater vulnerability to should they develop an alcohol-related problem having to do with their physiology. Where they- Shelley, how, why? What's going on? Yeah, like wh where, what is the, I mean- what is the public? Do you is there a particular place where you see a difference? Uh, where how the rise begins? Is there are there issues that you have seen? Yeah. So so we think that um, 
it's like everything, multifactorial. There are lots of different kinds of social changes and social dynamics. Um, a number of us think that some things have to do with the way in which marketing has taken place. There's been a lot of direct marketing right. to young women and women mm -hmm. in general of all sorts of uh, alcohol-related beverage that, beverages that are targeted directly to women. There's different kinds of beers and wines and and you know and vodka. If we weren't doing a podcast, I'd show you lots of pictures of all of these kinds of products. Yeah, yeah. And we know that advertising can be incredibly powerful and can drive certain kinds of change. And I'm not saying that's the only thing that's happened, but I think that that is definitely documented that that's happened. And what you've seen over a 20-year period from like 2000 till now is these rising rates and especially in younger age groups. And we've gotten to a place where we're kind of one-to-one in the 18 to 25-year-old group of binge drinking. And now with in some parts of the population with that actually for young women having surpassed young men in, in terms of um, their rate of binge alcohol use. So wow. it's very concerning medically yeah. and psychiatrically and, uh, and uh, just in terms of people's health and well-being over time, because we know that over time, over the long, long time of life, too much alcohol has a lot of different kinds of physical consequences, not just psychiatric ones, but things like cancer risks and cardiovascular disease and a whole host of other negative impact on your brain, your liver. And um, for women, breast cancer, um, the risk of that goes up also with with excess drinking. And so, you know, we, you and I talked briefly about some of these things. I can elaborate further, but there are a lot of health consequences that are not good for people over the long haul. And so um, there are many people in my field and also across a lot of the rest of the medical world who have observed this with a lot of concern and feel I feel in any event that people in the general public just don't have this awareness that this is a problem and that uh, people's health and well-being is at stake. Um, even if you don't, it is amazing. Even if you don't I mean, completely I, fully have a disorder, if you're just drinking too much, it's not good for you. There is ongoing research in substance abuse uh, across across the board and. Um, one would have assumed by now we would know everything there was to know about uh, alcoholism, for instance, and its uh, long-term effect on health. But I think new things are coming forward. Is, is that true? Yeah, I think that's true. I think we've been, like in all fields, we are accumulating knowledge over time through just the same types of research that people are aware of for every other field, you know, a lot of medical research. And I think some of the things to really know when we talk about alcohol that are really important is that in the last three years, there have been several major uh, reports um, that have come out, one from the um, uh, the um, major organizations that look at cancer-related research. And I think one of the findings is that alcohol actually is related to many different kinds of cancers, inclusive of mouth and esophagus and stomach and colon and liver, pancreas and breast. And um, mm. alcohol ingestion is actually related 
to all of those cancers as a risk. I think for women, one thing that's really important to know is that drinking alcohol is a, is a risk for breast cancer. And the reason I like to discuss that in general with people is because many women in the United States are rightly concerned about breast cancer. It's very high. I can't remember now if we're up to one in 10 or it's one in 11 or one in nine, but it's a lot of people who are at risk for breast cancer. And then some people are even more at risk because of family history. Mm-hmm. And a lot of women want to know what can, they can do. And they know that they can do exercise both pre and postmenopausally. That's been shown to reduce the risk of breast cancer. But drink lowering how much alcohol you drink. And frankly, if you really are concerned not drinking any, that actually lowers your lifetime risk for breast cancer. And I like equipping people with knowledge and information so that they can make choices for themselves. But if you don't have that information, you can't make that choice. So that's one thing. And another thing that's really accumulated is that in fact, um, alcohol for men and for women poses a cardiovascular risk for all sorts of um, cardiac related diseases. And in fact, you know, you'd have to get to a pretty low amount of daily alcohol to feel like you were under the limit where, you know, where alcohol couldn't actually pose a risk. So when we talk about what what are limits, you know, what are we really talking about? And, you know, the Department of Agriculture sets nutritional guidelines. And one of the things that they set is, you know, how much alcohol could be ingested basically to be within a safe dietary guideline. And what that really means is if you don't have any other risk factors, family history, personal history, other health history, what does that look like? Well, it's called for women, one standard drink per day or no more than seven in a week. And for men, it's 14 standard drinks um, in a week and no more than two in a, in a day. What is a standard drink? You know, Well, a standard drink is 12 ounces of beer, five ounces of wine, 1.5 ounces of spirits. And those are the standard dietary guidelines. But that doesn't mean that if you're drinking within those limits, that's, you know, the most optimal for you as a person for your health. And so those are dietary guidelines. They were set by the Department of Agriculture quite a number of years back. And a lot of the accumulating medical information would suggest that, you know, if you're worried about cancer, maybe that's already too much. And if you're worried about breast cancer, probably none is better than any. And if you're worried about cardiovascular health, again, probably lower, lower, and lower is better for you. And so, again, I just I just think it's so important for people to have the information so they can make healthy choices for their own health and well-being based on their own situation, or they can have the conversation with their doctor and talk about it and sort it through. So those are some of the things I just really like to empower people with that information. Do you... I imagine that it must be given your work and what you're teaching us now that to look at the proliferation of alcohol in our country right now. And uh, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that um, the marketing, the, the brilliant marketing of alcohol that is able to convince young women, for instance, that it is a sign of status and beauty. Um, and acceptance to drink and to do it in a very suave way that the budget for advertising for uh, an alcohol-related company must be huge. And its effect is clearly enormous. 
So for you, how, how do you respond to this truth and the proliferation of of uh, of um, wine stores and uh, its acceptance? How how do you come at that as a clinician and as a person who sees the results of people who abuse uh, these products? Yeah. Well, you know, this is a dilemma for us as a society, right? That we have, um, you know, kind of uncontrolled types of, you know, marketing and advertising and, um, and uh, that we as a country and as people take it on the chin, so to speak, um, in terms of the effects. And these are societal choices. You know, we can have an impact in all the ways that we as a society decide to have it, whether we legislate, regulate. Um, we all know we've all been down those roads before with other things like tobacco and other yeah. kinds of products. It's really all about like, you know, does as a society, do we want uh, beverage bottles to have warning labels? They have them in other countries, you know, actually telling you what some of the risks are. I mean, these are some of the things that we can do as a society if we choose to do it, you know, and I think it's always a tension in our society about how what we choose to do and how we choose to do it. But, you know, it's um, not, uh, it's inaccurate to think that you don't pay the price for things um, at some place. And we often pay it in our health and our well-being um, in so many different ways over time. And there are huge health impacts, uh, both personally, but also on the health system and public health-wise. And, you know, this is always a tension for us in our country, you know, how we choose to deal with these things. So this is true for alcohol. And uh, I think people know there are other substances coming down the pike and already have arrived that are also legal. And, uh, you know, it's another powerful market that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm talking about cannabis, which is yeah. in, in, in also in the marketing uh uh, world and uh, another place where we'll see this play out over time, I think, uh, again. So this is something we do in, you know, this is something we do in our country. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's kind of on all of us to kind of figure out if that's kind of how we want it to be or we want it to be different. You know, it's, uh, so that's what I would say about that, you know. And I think uh, the idea that uh, as these products proliferate, for better, well, I don't know it's for better and worse. I, I, I think personal choice in this country is uh, obviously, uh, at least in many ways, without getting even obliquely political about it, but people having freedom uh, to do what they want and how they want to do it and controlling their own fate uh, are all clearly important factors. Um, you know, one of the things that becomes clear, as you've described it, is the way in which substance abuse um, affects so many uh, so many aspects of health um, in the public sector in the private sector and I was thinking about how substance abuse plays into mental health issues and when people find themselves, in a particular state of mind, and the substance is something that where we go from it soothes to it actually causes deterioration of a particular condition, yeah. whether it's depression or any, I mean, depression is one that comes to mind immediately. But I think 
Could you talk a little bit more about the mental health implications of substance abuse? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because we know that we have what we call co-occurrence, meaning things that happen at the same time for people or develop together, or maybe one develops first and the other one comes on the heels. And the common things are common. You know, depression and anxiety-related disorders are very prevalent, and not just in the U.S., but really, you know, throughout Europe and much of the world. We know that women in their lifetime are twice as likely to have a depression problem and twice as likely to have an anxiety problem, and two to three times as likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder due to some type of, you know, trauma or assault. Mm. We also know that women are 10 times as likely to have some eating disorders. And all of those things can co-occur with alcohol and substance-related problems, both in men and women. But you can see there's a disproportionate prevalence in some of those most common disorders amongst women. So we often see for women that they have one or another of those mental health conditions, sometimes more than one, and it then gets tangled up in an alcohol-related problem or another substance-related problem. Because often when people are struggling with a mental health condition like depression or anxiety, if they're not treated, often people just reach for things that might help them at least temporarily feel better. And then if they're vulnerable to that substance, then they can find themselves having problems with that substance also. And then you can just get into this vicious cycle where let's say we'll just say, we'll just talk for point of argument about depression and alcohol problems. You know, you're sort of using some alcohol to help yourself with your depression, but in fact, alcohol is a depressant. So actually you wind up feeling more depressed. And then as the alcohol leaves your system, it makes you feel more anxious. So then you feel anxious. So then you feel like you probably need a little more alcohol, you know, in order to kind of fix that. And you can kind of find yourself going around and around and around. And, you know, that's kind of one of those things where we just say, you know, that's the thing we need to kind of try to help people break that cycle so that they get some treatment for their depression and some treatment for the drinking and so they can start to feel better. And we, we now know, again, from decades of research that treating these things together works best for people. And, you know, that's true for both men and for women. Um, And it's true for people with an anxiety disorder who might be using a substance, you know, to try to manage that. Um, You know, we know, again, it's really decades of research that if we can treat both, we person does better over time, feels better, um, which makes perfect logical sense if you think about it, you know. Um, uh, And and I do want to return to what I said to you earlier, which is that, What's really super important is for people to understand that really there are ev- what we call evidence-based treatments. And what do we mean by that? We mean treatments where we've had randomized clinical trials and we know that they work. So that's true for depression. It's true for anxiety. It's true for alcohol use disorders. It's true for opioid use disorders. We have medications and behavioral therapies or you know, various types of you know, tre- you know, therapies that people consider. And they all work because we have randomized control trials that show you they do. And so I think it's so important and we have more possibilities of things we can offer to people in 2021 than we ever had before. And um, that treatment gap remains so big, you know, where we just can't get the treatments to the people. We can't get the people to the treatments and we have this giant gap. Um, And so you know, that is a dilemma for us, you know, as a society and as a clinical 
community and as a public health community, you know, um, how do we get more treatment to people and more people to treatment? Um, when we have treatments that work on the one hand, and then we have a lot of people suffering on the other, and then we have this big chasm in between where we just can't get those two things to come together, you know, as often as we would like. So frustrating because, as you're suggesting, there are true, effective treatments available. Um, if you could, may if you could wave a magic wand, uh, Shelley, if I, could, if I could get you one, I'm not sure I can, but if I could, <laughs> um, what do you think? What would be one of the first things you would change that you would make? possible that currently feels overwhelmingly out of reach? Well, we know that people do have a really hard time finding treatment and it, it depends um, on so many different things. It depends on where you live in the country, but it depends on your insurance status. It depends on who's available to you and who's around. And sometimes you don't even know what it is you need. You just know you need something. So, you know, I think, um, I think there are so many approaches that uh, people I know in my field are trying to uh, think about about how to move that move, move that needle forward. One thing we did learn in the pandemic is that we can do much more in telehealth, and that that actually can make a big difference for people. It's not going to be the end all for folks. But it can make some treatment more accessible. Um, we also know that we have some internet based kinds of treatment or digital treatments that actually help people. And we know that if we can combine some of those with in-person treatment, that we probably will be able to spread treatment to more people, you know, overarchingly. I mean, I'm talking about a big swath of the population where, you know, no. we really are, you know, talking about communities where there's just almost nobody, you know, in their community. So that's one thing. And of course, you know, the more we can have a synthetic and comprehensive health system, the better. Um, and the more we can embed certain kinds of um, mental health professionals in other types of medical care, the better. And the more we can kind of work together like across systems, specialized addiction treatment, specialized mental health treatment, but in collaboration with primary health care and other things the better we'll do. It's a little bit like for anything else. If you go to your primary care doctor, they're going to be able to manage most of what you need. But mm -hmm. when they need a specialist, they refer you to somebody and you may wind up being with that specialist for a long time, or you may get a consultation, and then go back to your primary care doctor. You know, we sort of envision that a lot of addiction and mental health care should all be like that. In some instances, some people who have more needs will need to be seen for longer and maybe for a very long time in a more specially specialist kind of um, arrangement. And for others, they'll be able to get some care and then go back into their primary care, you know, um, setting and do well. Um, but we don't have a really great way at this point of integrating all that. And I think it'll make a big difference over time, the more we can work on systems that, that, that work that way. So that, that those are, you know, I'm waiting for you to get me that wand. And, oh, then I'm gonna, and then I'm going to wave it very vigorously. <laughs> I mean, the the needs uh, are so um, so painfully obvious. Shelley, how do you 
in your professional life, how do you do this knowing even as you push forward in the work, the the numbers, um, both in terms of those who are affected, who are suffering with some form of substance abuse, um, and then look at the number of people who actually get care, but you said between 10 and 15% of people uh, who are affected get any kind of treatment. Doesn't that just feel frustrating? You want to just like close the door and uh, just watch TV? Like, how, 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 how do you do this? Well, I think we do it because, um, first of all, I have fabulous colleagues, not just here in the Boston area, but across the country. I've always had fabulous colleagues who are all working all the time on pushing the envelope forward, both in terms of new treatments, effective treatments, and also trying to move the needle forward, you know, in terms of uh, advocacy. And I have wonderful, wonderful colleagues who all are inspiring all the time. And and I think more and more what we're seeing now is is acceptance within the medical field of, you know, within medicine in general of the needs for mental health and addiction treatment. And that's taken a long time, but that's happening. And um, and there's much more acknowledgement of how much more training we need for um, uh, practitioners of all sorts in terms of um, hoping and helping them become effective in their own sort of identification of their patients' needs. That's been long in coming, but it's happening now. I really think it is. I think uh, that, and that all of that starts to begin to lead to less stigma. You've already seen sort of even in the Congress, people of all political persuasions recognizing through the opioid crisis that more more is needed and through the suicide crisis, more is needed. And so you you see these things starting to gain some traction in places where it never had it before. And I think that's a hopeful thing. And then I think finally, people themselves can really band together and demand better care. And when people do that, they usually get it. And we have it, we have lots of historical uh, examples, everything from the AIDS crisis with people demanding treatment to breast cancer with people demanding treatment to walks for this and that and the other thing. And those things have really meant resources have flowed, you know, when people themselves demand it. And so I do think more and more people in the United States with mental health related issues in themselves and their families or addiction issues in themselves and their families, the more people just rise up and say, this isn't acceptable. We need care. We need treatment. Um, and the more active people get, we've already seen that, that works. <laughs> that really works. So I think that's the place where, you know, these are iterative steps that I think we can get to a better place. Dr. Shelley Greenfield, it has been such a pleasure talking with you about this incredibly complex constellation of issues over addiction. And I think we feel hopeful uh, with you that we might yet be able to see a world where people who are suffering can find a place to go to, uh, to feel more complete and healed. So um, thank you so much. 
Thanks so much, Keith. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodad.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.